together. We're in Psalm 131 as we continue our study through the Psalms of Ascent. And Psalm 131 is all about humility. And admittedly, it's sometimes difficult for us to be humble when we're from Georgia. I mean, national champions and all that. But humility is, is really essential, and this psalm is vitally important as we think about the Hebrews ascending the hill of Zion and standing in the holy place before God in worship, or if we think about how that applies to us as God's people who are trusting and following Jesus every day, humility is not only important, in fact, Humility is the essential attitude for us as we live out our faith. James in James chapter 4 and verse 6 said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6 said, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God was so concerned with the humility of the apostle Paul that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that he was given a vision. He, had, he obtained knowledge that, that no one else had. And to make sure that he didn't become proud or conceited, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. It's as though God built a barrier around Paul's life to keep him humble in light of the things that he had learned. So 131, the Psalm 131 is going to give us some direction on humility. So as we as we develop that understanding of humility, we want to think about three components of humility that we'll see from the text. In verse 1, we want to see that humility means dependence upon God. And verse 2 is going to teach us that humility means contentment with God. And verse 3 is going to teach us that humility is, is hope in God. So let's look at Psalm 131. As I read, this is God's holy and eternal word, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So as we look at verse 1, we want to see that David is teaching us about humility. And verse 1 is going to teach us that humility is really about dependence. So verse 1 is going to call us to recognize God's position. Now, when, when we think of humility, we typically associate humility with the doctrine of sin. We, we think God is holy and, and I am a sinner and, and therefore I can do nothing apart from God's grace. And, and while that is certainly true, I really think that the, the center of humility should, should really be in the doctrine of creation before, because before Adam and Eve sinned, when there was no sin in the world, they were expected to be humble. And the Lord Jesus 
a man who was perfectly sinless, the son of God in the flesh, who obeyed everything that God gave him to do. When he described his heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he said, I am gentle and humble. And so when we think about humility from a biblical perspective, humility is really rooted in our creatureliness. Humility is found in the fact that as created beings, we have limitations and are therefore dependent upon other people. Uh, There's only one being that exists independently of everything and everyone, and that, of course, is God. God is self-existent. He's always existed in and of himself. There was never a time when God began And so he didn't come into being. He's not dependent upon anyone for his existence. God is self-sufficient. He is self, excuse me, he's self-sustaining. He needs nothing and no one to sustain his being. In fact, God is in every aspect of his being perfect and infinite. And so that means he is unchanging. There's no need to sustain his being. He is simply what he is. And God is the only one who is self-sufficient. God is able to do anything and everything that he wills to accomplish. And he needs no one else to help him because he possesses all knowledge and he possesses all power. God is the only one who can make those claims. I think we certainly recognize that we can't. We're not self-existent. Every one of us came into existence because of the act of our parents. Our very life is because of our parents. And even beyond our parents, our life is because God breathed the breath of life into us. We're, we're certainly not self-sustaining. We, we don't create the air that we need to live Most of us don't grow our food. We're dependent on others. And even if we do grow our food, we don't create the soil. We don't make the rainfall. We don't make the sunshine. All of us are aging. And whether you know it or not, as you age, you you become weaker, you become slower. And we're moving toward the point where every one of us eventually, unless the Lord returns, will die. We cannot sustain our life forever. And none of us are self-sufficient. You, you may be the best that, that you are at whatever it is that you do. You might be the best teacher at the school. You might be the best doctor in the hospital. You might be the best plumber in the community. But the reality is there's no such thing as a truly self-made man. All of us have had people who have developed our abilities. All of us have had people who gave us opportunities to learn And all of us at the end of the day are dependent upon God even for the breath that we breathe. And so humility is really found in the fact that we depend on others for life and for living. And ultimately, we depend upon God for all things. And it is the realization and the acceptance of this truth that we're marked by limitations and dependence that is the heart of humility. So look what David says in verse 1, he, he says, my heart is not lifted up. That is, David is saying, I'm not, I'm not proud. David doesn't have a haughty or exalted view of himself. When, when David becomes king, he's not walking around basking in the glow of his kingship. He's not thinking, I'm, I'm a better person or I'm better than, than all of the masses because of who I am. He's not proud. 
He also says he's not puffed up. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. That's, that's an expression of, of arrogance. David is saying, I'm not given to boasting. I'm not given to bragging. So when, when David becomes king, he, he's not going to be walking around telling everyone all about the exploits that, that came with his life that, that led him to become king over the nation of Israel. And then he says, I'm, I'm not presumptuous at the end of verse 1. He says, I, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That, that David is simply saying, I know that I don't know everything. And, and I know that there are things that I cannot know. And so David is focused on the, not focused on the unknowable and the unresolvable stuff of life. So when David became king, he, he became king in the most Un, uh, most ordinary way, actually a rather abnormal way because he was the youngest son of Jesse. And typically, the king was hereditary. It's given to the firstborn, to the firstborn, to the firstborn. And here's, here's David. He's, he's the youngest. There's no way that he would be king, and yet he is. And so David isn't sitting around thinking, you know, I wonder how this happened to come about. Now, he, he just accepts the fact that this was God's will he rests in the fact that God is sovereign, and so he's just faithful to the decision that God has made. And so what, what David says in verse 1 is, all of my knowledge, all of my wealth, all of my possessions, all of my status, none of that is because of me, and none of that is about me. So David is saying, I realize that I am a product of God's sovereign choice and power. So wherever I happen to be, whoever I am, whatever I have, whatever I do is because of him. He is the one who is the sovereign decision maker over my life. Now, parenthetically, I want to say that does not mean that David didn't attempt great things for God. And it doesn't mean that we don't attempt great things for God. We should step out on faith and attempt great things for God. But as we're doing it, we remember Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And this certainly doesn't mean that we don't give ourselves to learning the deep things of God because we should. But as we're learning the deep things of God, we remember God's own words in Deuteronomy 29.29 29, when God said the secret things belong to the Lord and that which is revealed belongs to us. And so, yes, we take up God's word and we study. If God revealed it to us, it's worthy of our attention. But we realize there are some things that are hidden behind the immutable counsel of God's holy will, and that's not for us to know. And so we don't spend our time trying to figure all that out. We trust in God. And so humility is really found in recognizing our limitations and living with God-reliance instead of self-reliance, living with a deep dependence upon God. And we see this in David's life. David will eventually be king and he will rule over the united tribes of Israel. And under David's kingship, Israel will go where she's never gone before. Israel will be great militarily, economically, geographically. David will take Israel to the zenith of her power. And in the midst of his rule, toward the end of his rule, God came to David and, and he said, David, I'm going to make a promise to you. And that promise is that one of your descendants will sit upon the throne of Israel forever. 
And when David heard that, he began to think back over his life. And he thought, I'm the, I'm the youngest son of Jesse. I, I was just a shepherd boy out in the field taking care of sheep. And, and, and now I find myself being the king over, at the time, the most powerful nation in that area. And God had, had brought us to great heights. And now God is telling me that one of my descendants is going to be king forever. And David is processing that. And I want you to, to listen to David's prayer when he thinks back to everything that has transpired in his life. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 18, listen to David's prayer. David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing. In your eyes, O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, for there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our own ears. David looked at his own life. He heard the promises of God, and basically he threw up his hands and he goes, God, I, I don't get it, but this is simply because of you. Everything that has transpired in the, in the life of the greatest king of Israel, everything that will happen as a result of David and the promise given to David, David says, I know it's not because of me. I know it's because you are great and there's no one like you. David recognized the position of God as sovereign, not only over all things, but sovereign over his life. And he recognized his dependence. So humility begins with dependence. It is recognizing God's position. Then we come to verse two and we see that humility involves contentment. And verse two is calling for us to rest in God's purpose. Note David's words in verse two. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. David is saying in the, in the innermost being, in my innermost being, I'm, I'm calm. And that's a, that's a picture of a tranquil mountain lake as opposed to a, a raging river or a, a tumultuous sea, sea that's tossed by a storm. David says, deep down inside, I'm like a tranquil mountain lake, like a river. And then he says, I'm, I'm calm. And that's not just no noise, it's, it's stillness. There's a sense of no anxiety. Everything is at peace. And so David is saying, you know what, deep down in my soul, I'm just chill. Everything's good. And to illustrate that, he, he uses a, a picture of a, a nursing child. So he says, I, I'm like a, a weaned child. So when a baby is still nursing. When a baby is not weaned, it can't talk. And so the way it communicates is by patiently waiting until none. The way it communicates is by screaming at the top of its lungs. And when a baby is hungry, it's saying, I want my food. And if I don't have it in the next 10 seconds, I'm going to die. Where's my mama? And so when a baby comes to its mama, that baby is looking 
for what mama's going to give him. That's his reason for coming. He's drawing near to mom to get what he wants. Now, on the other hand, a child that's weaned is simply coming and climbing up in mom's lap, not demanding, just accepting. He's not there because of what mom's going to give me. A weaned child is there just because it's mom. And a weaned child is content with mom and the security and the peace that comes with being with mom. And David says, that's what I'm like with God. This just sounds so much like the occasion when Jesus was visiting the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters were there. You remember, and, and Martha was so preoccupied. She was so distracted. She's running here, making the sandwiches, cleaning up, getting everything in order. And there was, there was Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus, content to be with Jesus, content to receive from Jesus whatever Jesus wanted to give her, content just to bask in worship and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, David is saying this about his relationship with God. He's saying, I am content to know God. I'm content to do what he wants. I'm content to be a, a part of his plan. So when, when we think about contentment, we tend to think about contentment in relationship to money and possessions. And, and there is an aspect of contentment that has to do with that. As followers of Jesus, we, we don't want to be marked by greed and anxiety over money. But, but David is really focusing on something far more significant than just his money. It's, it's really, he's content with God and some scholars say that this psalm was really written about the time of 1 Samuel 24. When David was out in the wilderness fleeing from Saul, David was a, a young man when he was anointed king. And, and it was about 15 years from the time that David was anointed king until he actually became king of Judah. And, and then it was about seven-ish more years before he became king over all the united tribes of Israel. And so David is not yet king. He's anointed as king. But there's another king at the moment. His name is Saul. And God was done with Saul. And Saul at this point is basically an insane nutcase. And he is obsessed with destroying David. And no matter how much David loves Saul, no matter how good David is to Saul, no matter how much David serves Saul, Saul's obsession is to destroy David. And so for many years, David as the anointed king was out in the wilderness fleeing for his life while Saul and the elite troops of Israel pursued him with the intention of killing him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, an interesting Story comes, I know there are kids here, so I'm not being graphic, but David and his men are hiding in a cave out in the wilderness, and, and Saul and his troops are pursuing them, and, and they stop outside the cave, and Saul needs to take care of business. So Saul goes into the cave to take care of business. 
David and his men are in the back of the cave, and here is Saul completely vulnerable, and David's men in 1 Samuel 24, 6 say to David, David, this is a God thing, man. This is your time. You're the anointed king. There is Saul. All you got to do is go out there and plunge a dagger in his back, and he's done. You're exalted to be king. It's all good. Go take care of business in another way. David stealthily crept out up behind Saul and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And even as he did that, he was filled with remorse and repentance. And he he said to himself and his men, how can I ever lift up my hand against God's anointed? Later in the chapter, David sees Saul and they're far apart, but David hollers over to Saul and he says, Saul, We're going to let God decide between you and me, but until God does something with you, I'm your loyal servant, and I will never raise my hand against the anointed of God. You know what? David was content not just with God's assignment. He was content with God's timing. He was content with the way that God wanted to work through his life. He was trusting in God's wisdom and he was resting in God's purpose to work out his work, his way, his time. Like a child with his mom, so was David content with God and his will. Now, I want to suggest that this has some profound implications for us, not just as individuals, but also corporately because we do depend not just on God, we depend upon each other. And and when Paul talks about the church, one metaphor that he uses is the body. He says that we're like, we're like a body. We're, we're one entity and and yet we're made up of a a whole multitude of diverse parts. And, And for the body to function, The hands have to do what the hands do. The feet have to do what the feet do. The nose has to do what the nose does. The mouth has to do what he does. Everybody has to function according to the role and the purpose that God has for them. And when that happens, the body is able to function. So Paul says that's the way the church is. But there was a problem at Corinth. At Corinth, they were to be functioning as a body, but they were basically a paralyzed invalid. And the reason was because no one was content with the purpose and the role that God gave them. The hand was saying, wait a minute, I want to be the foot. I want to be the one that gets us there. And the foot says, well, I'm tired of being walked on. I want to be the mouth. I want to be the one that talks. And the mouth says, I'm I'm tired of talking. I want to listen a little bit. I want to be the ears. It's like an orchestra. An orchestra produces beautiful music when everybody functions together doing their part. But when the violin player says, you know what, I'm tired of playing the violin, I want to play the gong. I mean, the gong player, he just stands back there. And then every now and then he hits that gong and everybody gets real excited. Wow, they got a gong. And there's a drummer and he's been been playing drums. I've been keeping the beat for five years. Like I know how to keep the beat. I should be the conductor. And all of a sudden, instead of a beautiful, unified piece of music, there's this cacophony of sound that doesn't make any sense because everyone is stirred up about what they're not. And I think there's an important lesson that Paul would say when God has a role and a place for us, 
If we're so stirred up over where we're not and what we don't have, then Jesus is dishonored and the body, the church, is dysfunctional. So what David is saying is is really important. David is saying humility is acknowledging that God knows best and submitting joyfully to him, and that's a sign of humility. So I want to press into this just a little bit and, and really ask you today, are, are, are you content where God has you? Are, are you content with how God wants to use you? Peter in John 21, 21 was being restored by the Lord Jesus. And after he was restored, Jesus said to him, now, Peter, I want you to understand something. You're going to die. You're going to die as a martyr. You're going to die for your faith in Jesus. And and Peter was taking that in. He looked over and he saw the apostle John and he said, well, well, Jesus, what about that guy? And Jesus said, if I want to let him live until I come back again, what is that to you? You follow me. What was Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, you're not him, so don't worry about him. You be you. You follow me and do what God has called you to do. And we sing wherever he leads me. Whatever it costs me, really? Wherever he leads you, whatever it costs you, are you content with that aspect of God's perfect will? I I love how Josh has taught us that if we want to see God do big things, so often when God does big things, it's because everybody does their own little thing. And God takes all those little things and he adds them up and he does something extraordinary. You know what happens sometimes? We get so obsessed with the extraordinary that we actually come to despise the ordinary. We get so excited about the big things that we despise the little things. We become like a crying baby demanding our way and forgetting that more often than not, God does extraordinary things through very ordinary means. We think about growing in our faith. We're like, man, I'm really going to grow this summer because I'm, I'm going to this conference and I'm going to this retreat and I'm going to this camp and I'm going on this mission trip. And man, it's going to be, God's going to just grow me so much. And those are wonderful things. Do every one of those things. But as you're walking out the door to go to your conference, as you're going out the door to go to your mission trip, there's your Bible sitting by your bedside table and you haven't even touched it. And if God wants to work in your life through the ordinary means of you getting up and reading your Bible every day, are you content with that? Oh, I want to go to this conference and I'm really going to learn. And every Sunday your pastor is coming and proclaiming the word of God that he has spent hours studying so that he can be faithful to his calling. And you're not content to come and prayerfully hear him because I've got to go to this conference and and see how God's going to grow me. And, And that is the means that God wants to use to grow you. Are you content with that? Or maybe it's uh, ministry. Maybe you're like, oh, man, I'm going to go pastor this little church out in the countryside. I, I'm going I'm to become a community group leader. I, I'm going to have a D group. I'm, I'm going to become a part of, of this ministry. And, man, I, I'm going to change the world, man. I mean, this little church out in the country has never done anything, man. But when I take over, it's going to be the next mega church. 
Man, this ministry, we're going to go all around the world. We're going to transform things. Man, my community group, it's going to be incredible. Everybody's going to want to come. Pastor Scott's going to make my community group a model for all the others. It's going to be glorious. And then 10 months later, you're sitting in a room and you got three people. And God says, you know what? Maybe I want you to pour your life into these three people. And see the transforming power of God. Are you content with that? We think about praying for people. We think, man, Lord, I've been praying for five years. My wife's got this really annoying habit. She doesn't really. I'm just example. <laughs> Maybe I should say my wife's been praying for five years. My husband's got this really annoying habit. I mean, Lord, why don't you change them? Lord, I've been praying so long to see this person change. They're so annoying. Why aren't you working in their life? And, and if God says, you know what? Maybe I'm trying to teach you to love annoying people the way that I love annoying people. Are you content with that? Are you content with the way that God wants to use your faithfulness? Because humility says, I'm going to rest in God's plan for my life. I'm going to be content with him and with his will. We look at verse 3. Humility is dependence. It calls us to recognize God's position. Humility is contentment. It calls us to rest in God's purpose. And thirdly, in verse 3, humility is hope. It calls us to rely on God's power. Hope is that confident expectation that better days are ahead. We've talked about this a lot. It is assurance that the best is coming. And what David is saying is this, this sense of confidence should not come from me, but rather it should come exclusively from the Lord. So humility looks to the future and it does not say, wow, what do I have to do? Who do I have to conquer? What do I have to handle to make sure that the future is what I want it to be? No, humility looks to the future and says, what is God doing and how do I go about joining him in his purpose? It remembers Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, that it's not by power, it's not by might, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So humility says, nothing gives me hope, nothing gives me assurance, nothing gives me assurance and confidence but God. So I'm going to anchor my life in Jesus. I'm looking to him to fight my battles. He alone is my savior. He alone is my provider and my protector and my healer and my strength. So my eyes are on him now and forevermore. Every day that I get up, I'm looking to Jesus alone for the strength to live the life that he sets before me that day. Now listen, your story may be big, your story may be little, but all of it is a part of God's bigger story. God is doing something big and eternal and he's the one who makes it work. So no matter how, no matter how big or insignificant we may seem to be, the reality is we will be effective only if we walk with Jesus. So what hope and confidence says is, I'm hooking my wagon to Jesus. God is at work. Nothing can defeat him. He is victorious. He knows what he's doing. So my confidence is in him. He's the creator, the sustainer, the ruler over all things. I just, I just love the story in 
Second Chronicles, I think most of you probably remember it in Second Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat is the king. David's no longer the king, but Jehoshaphat is, is really a man at times of his life very much like David. And, and at this time, Jehoshaphat acted in, in really, really strong faith. So he's ruling in Jerusalem, and they, they receive message. There's a confederation of, of enemies who have joined together, and they're coming to attack Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat realizes this, this confederation is way more powerful than them. There's no way that their army can defeat him. And so Jehoshaphat goes and he falls down before God and he cries out, Lord, I'm the king. I'm supposed to know what to do in this situation. I'm, I'm supposed to lead the army, but I don't know what to do. And so he said in verse 12, I, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. God sent a message through a prophet in verse 15 that said, you're, you're not, you're not going to need to fight this fight. He said, I, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to defeat the enemy, and you're not even going to have to fight. So you know what Jehoshaphat did? He called up Pastor Ryan, and he said, Pastor Ryan, I need you to get the choir together. Tomorrow, we're going out to battle, and I want you and the choir to lead the way. Now, I... Personally, if it's me or Ryan, I'm okay with Pastor Ryan leading. He's a lot younger and stronger than I am. But the reason the choir leader and the choir went out was not because they were skilled in battle. It's because they knew how to celebrate God's victories. The choir was the people that stood in front of everybody when God had done his work and said, let's celebrate with song. We're going to lead you in that celebration. So when Jehoshaphat says, I want the choir to go out first, what he's saying is, we're going out celebrating the fact that the victory is already won. We don't even have to fight the battle. It's done, so let's go ahead and get on with the celebrating. Let's get the choir leading the way, singing praises unto God. That's what humility does. Humility recognizes God's power at work, and he trusts God's power. Charles Spurgeon said that Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest psalms to learn. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think humility is something that takes us all of our lives to really begin to learn. Learning humility, recognizing God's position as the sovereign, faithful, totally reliable ruler and therefore depending upon him, resting in God's purposes as good and wise and therefore being content with him. Relying on God's power, the omnipotent, victorious one, and, and placing our hope and confidence in him, that comes through a process of daily applying truth to our lives. So just as we wrap up, wrap up let, let me just share three steps that might can help us to grow in humility as we, as we finish Psalm 131. I think, firstly, we, we need to be prayerful. Obviously, we need to be prayerful. If we want to grow in humility, we need to ask God to give us this mindset. All growth comes from God. There is no such thing as spiritual work being accomplished by physical power. So if we want to grow in Christ's likeness, we, we have to be praying, asking God, you tell me in your word, you bless the humble. 
You tell me in your word, you call me to humility. I want that. And I don't have to say, is this the Lord's will? It is. God wants to give us humility. So we need to be praying and asking God, work that in my life. But we also remember, as Pastor Josh taught us a couple weeks ago, when we're waiting, we're working. When we're asking, we're applying because sanctification calls for us to cooperate. And so let's be prayerful. But secondly, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Let's begin to honestly evaluate our lives and the activities of our lives and ask ourselves, is is this really about me and for me or is this about God and for God? And I look at all of my life, I look at my learning, my serving, my relationships, my working, my family, and I'm asking every day, is this really rooted in God? Am I founding my life and the activities of my life are on God or is it just really all about me? Because listen, God is not only here with us as we walk each day, but God is the transcendent, majestic ruler of all. And we need to be honest and remember who God is because his sovereignty and his authority and his power and his wisdom is what gives us confidence to trust in him and contentment to walk with him. So we evaluate our lives and as a part of that we ask, do I, do I really, am I really understanding who God is? Am I really making him the foundation of my life because he's the one who can really make it happen? So I'm honest, I'm being honest. And then thirdly, I'm being devoted. If we want to grow in humility, we need to come to Jesus every day. A daily devotion to Jesus. Because listen, Psalm 131 is about Jesus. This is a Jesus psalm. It expresses the consciousness of Jesus. Think about Jesus as a man. Did Jesus live with dependence upon God? Well, he said in John 12, 29, the father commanded me what to say and I said it. Did Jesus live with contentment with God? We remember his prayer in Matthew twenty two forty two. 42, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Did Jesus place his hope and confidence in in God? Well, when he was dying on the cross in Luke 23, 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm looking to the resurrection and I realize it's by the power of God that I'll be raised. This psalm expresses the consciousness of Jesus. It also expresses the character of Jesus because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God. So if we want to see what wisdom and power is like when it's lived out, it's Jesus. If we want to see the character of humility, how does this, how do I live this? What does it look like? Well, it's it's Jesus. And so humility really arises from us coming and sitting and learning and spending time with Jesus. And as we do those things, inevitably we will grow in humility. It's about taking up his word and prayer, not just to get an inspiring story, but to learn about Jesus. And as we take up the word and prayer and learn about Jesus, the result will inevitably be growth in humility because that's who Jesus is. In a very, very difficult time in their history, God spoke to the Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 9, and he said, I want you to boast not in your intellect or in your position or in your strength or in your money, 
but boast in the fact that you know the Lord your God. He was calling them to humility. He was calling them to recognize it's not about them, it's about him. And therefore putting all of their hope and trust in him. And my prayer for us in the days ahead, in the months ahead, as we move into a new church here in September August and September is that we will be devoted to learning humility, to live out the prayer that we're going to sing in just a minute. Lord, I I know you, but I, I need you. And to begin every day with this prayer, Lord, I need you. Without you, things fall apart. We're going to sing in just a moment. And my my prayer is that, that that song would be an expression of not just your praise, but your heart's prayer. That you would recognize nothing's going to happen in my life until I begin from this point. I need you. After I pray, we're going to sing. And while we're singing, if you have a decision that you need to share with with a pastor or prayer partner, they'll be down here in the front if you want them to pray for you or if you just want to come and pray and say, Lord, I I just really, I need you and I need to begin every day with that and would you instill that humility in me that, that I might be exalted in your time. Would you join me as we pray and stand with me, please?